presence. And there was no place for them to go. I know, some of you are looking at me like, that's in the Bible? Yeah. Isn't that the coolest thing you ever heard of? How would you like to be standing in line for the judgment of God, the great white throne judgment, which we won't be at, by the way, because we're saved. We'll be at the judgment seat of Christ. You know, the great white throne judgment, okay, an unsaved person, you're standing suddenly before the holiness of the God that you, like, kicked in the teeth your whole life and said, I don't want anything to do with you. Now you're standing before Him in front of all His holiness. You're waiting for your judgment, and you're like... <sighs> and all of a sudden, the earth takes off and runs. Ah, I think I'm in trouble here. Okay, listen. I don't know how God meant that, whether literally or metaphorically, but He's trying to make a big point. The earth and the sky around it will run from His holy presence until Jesus grabs them back, pulls them in, and remakes them by fire to finally make them right. Amen? We'll run from Him. Listen, do not depend on your house, no matter how big it is, your cars, no matter how new they are, your spouse, no matter how great that person is, your children, no matter how much you love them. Amen? Your career, no matter what it means to you. Your success, no matter how good it makes you feel. Don't depend on anything else because it's all going to be shaken. The only thing you will have when you stand before God is the knowledge that your life was woven into His fabric through Jesus Christ. Amen? And if you want to live a life of vigor and hope now, If you want to get rid of anxiety and fear and start living with some direction, don't let your heart be divided. Get serious with this big and awesome God. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, we are getting that kingdom. Amen. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a what? Do you know what that means? When a fire gets in the path of something, it burns and consumes everything in its way. Amen? God, when He comes into your life, don't let any preacher ever fool you. If you've ever been taught a cheap gospel, it's a lie. You give your heart to God, it means you give Him what? Everything. He comes in, He consumes it all. He's got to be number one. Before we go to our break, I want to go to Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Another one of my favorite verses. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. When the Bible says He is before all things, it is referring to Him as Creator. Alright? God existed before all things. Jesus made all things. And in Him everything holds together. Now, when we talk about Jesus having made all things, I want to talk to you about who this Jesus is, alright? He pays attention to detail, number one. You ever think your life is lost in the details? Like, God, do you get it? Do you understand I have a headache today? Do you know what I have to accomplish today? How many of you know that Jesus is into details? He, he's into details. Don't sweat it. Don't be anxious. Your God is unshakable and He's into details. I'm going to tell you how much into detail He is. In your body right now, sitting in your chair, in the average adult human body, there are 60 thousand to one hundred thousand miles of blood vessels. 
If I took all your blood vessels, and this would be a really cool experiment. Who wants to volunteer? <laughs> Alice, uh, yeah, you told me at the table you would do this, right? Okay, you're in the medical stuff. Okay, if we could dissect Alice, okay, and take all of her blood vessels out of her body, they would, they would go around the equator four times. Huh. Sitting in that body. Now, the reason there can be so much in there is 40 billion of those blood vessels are microscopic capillaries that are eight microns wide. I heard, this is what I heard when I said that. Hmm. Everybody was thinking, what the heck is a micron? Okay, I don't know what that is. Okay, 40 billion of your blood vessels are eight microns wide. Okay, a hair on your head, one of your human hairs, is 100 microns wide. A hundred. A hair is a hundred. You have 40 billion blood vessels in you that are eight. And those blood vessels are actually carrying oxygen to all the parts of your body to make you live. Like those capillaries, those tiny ones, that go to your eyes and your kidneys. And I'm very much in tune with those because once a year as a diabetic, I have to get those eye ones checked out. And they can, they can hemorrhage those tiniest blood vessels. But if they're working right, you, you maintain your sight and your kidneys continue to function. They are invaluable. Amen? They are eight microns wide and there are 40 billion of them inside of you and you wouldn't be alive without your kidneys and you couldn't see without your eyes and Jesus Christ made every single one of them and continues to cause them to operate. So next time you don't think He cares about the details of your life or whether your car is broke down or what kind of problem that you're facing that day, think, hmm, I'm alive. There's all kinds of things working in me. Who's doing that? The one who made it and holds it together. Amen? He's into detail. Jesus is also into mystery. Now look, some things happen mysteriously, some things we can't figure out at the moment. But God is working. Listen. That is a monarch caterpillar up there on the screen. Now, a monarch caterpillar comes from an egg that is the, as big as a period at the end of a sentence. The monarch caterpillar comes out of that tiny little egg and he'll start to grow until he gets his nice black and white and yellow striped suit. Do you see that suit? Isn't that pretty? Beautiful caterpillar. And he'll roam about for a while and uh, feed on green leaves until he can find the one from which he wants to hang or spin his silk pad. And once he finds the right place to hang his silk pad, that monarch, butter, monarch caterpillar will shed his outer skin and hang from that silk pad as a chrysalis. Now, I just want to make sure... By the way, this, is in, um, this, this devotion is in, I think, Real Life for God or Hope. I have two books out there of devotionals, like daily devotionals, and this is one of the things I cover in it. This is unbelievable. He will hang from that silk pad. Now, the chrysalis is not a cocoon. It is the caterpillar. Right? That's not a cocoon. That is the caterpillar with his outer skin shed. Now, he will hang there for a short time. And what happens as the chrysalis hangs there is the body does a miraculous thing and he begins what to, his own digestive juices. I mean, you talk about needing some antacid here. Okay? The caterpillar's own digestive juices begin to break down what used to be caterpillar body parts into what scientists refer to as a rich fluid medium. I'm going to tell you what it really is. Uh, boogery red goo. <laughs> now, I'm just going to be honest with you, okay? So, I've seen this because when I was principal of a Christian school, the first grade class, did an experiment with these, and one of the kids poked a hole in a chrysalis. Yeah, what came out was like 
red boogery goo. Okay, that's what it looks like. But here's what happens. So the caterpillar turns into a gooey, red, sticky mess. That's all that's in there. I promise you. Then, a miracle begins to take place as that thing has been broken down to its basic omeganal cells. Now, the miracle can happen. And that goo begins to take those omeganal cells and turn what used to be caterpillar body parts and organs into butterfly wings and antenna and eyes. To this day, if you get on the Internet and research it, scientists do, know, do not know how it happens. They still call it a mystery. Yeah, it's a mystery, all right, okay? Caterpillar goes to goo, and goo begins to go to butterfly, and when that chrysalis turns from green to translucent, you know the time is about to happen, and the butterfly is going to emerge. Now, I want to tell you something. God is mysterious, but He cannot be shaken. You may be going, something, going through something in your life right now. If we go back to this chrysalis, if you were to poke a chrysalis at the wrong time, the only thing that would come out would be boogery red goo. And you'd say, that's a mess. There's nothing going on there but a mess. This must be a mistake. Uh-uh. God's working a miracle in that mess. Butterfly's about to emerge. And I want to tell you something. Your God is mysterious. You may say, Shelley, if you'd poke a hole in my life right now, you'd see this mess come out and you'd say, that's nothing there but a mess. You hold on to your seats. Amen? God's working a miracle in the mess. He is a God of detail. He is a God of absolute mystery. And then finally, He is a God who is massive. He's into that much detail, but He's massive. Do you know, we live, the scientists can't find the end of the universe right now. They say it keeps expanding. But our nearest galaxy neighbor is the Andromeda galaxy. So, like, if we as the Milky Way galaxy needed a cup of sugar, we'd have to go to the Andromeda galaxy. Now, the Andromeda galaxy is 2.2 million light years away. And everybody said, hmm. Okay. Light travels at 186,000 miles a second. So, in the time it takes me to say, one, light just went 186,000 miles. At that rate of speed, it would take light 2.2 million years to get to our nearest neighboring galaxy. And there are trillions of galaxies. But listen to me. Jesus is currently at... And after I was done, a couple people came up to me and they were like... Oh, that was so good. That was wonderful. I really enjoyed that. These people are complimenting me. And there's my mom. I said, what did you think, Mom? And she goes, you can really talk. (laughs) You can talk and talk. Okay. So, and I do. I talk to myself. I talk to whoever will listen. Colossians 1. 16 to 17, we talked about He is before all things. He made all things. He's massive, but He's into detail. He is um, also not just, He's mysterious, but He's not just before all things. In Him, all things hold together. Now, it has always amazed me, the force of gravity. If we were to take a little field trip and go outside of the building, it amazes me that I can take my 150-pound body, jump off the ground, and technically, when you jump up off the ground, you're in outer space. I mean, really, you know, you could, you're literally hanging off the face of the earth. 
And what pulls you back down? Gravity. So gravity can pull this body back down to the ground. It's causing the planets to rotate around the sun. It is amazing how powerful the force of gravity is. Amen? And it cannot be defied. It cannot be defied. It's one of God's natural laws that He's put into motion. But the reason the planets continue to orbit around the sun, the reason gravity continues to work, it's not something crazy. It is Jesus. The Jesus who made the world holds the world together. And as massive and as amazing the force of gravity is, there is a force that is much, much stronger. The strongest known force in the universe happens in the nucleus of an atom. The strong nuclear force holds protons and neutrons together in the nucleus of the atom. And if that force were to disappear, everything would disappear. So constantly, at every second, Jesus is holding together the creation that He has made. Amen? That's why He continues to operate. When He says it's time to be done, it's going to be time to be done. He's in full control. But not only that, He's not only holding all things together physical, He's holding all things together spiritual and mental. Now, I said before, we're all on the brink of insanity without God. And there literally are people who go insane. But the Bible says in Isaiah 26, 3 and 4, The steadfast of mind He will keep in perfect peace because He trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. That's Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. So not only is He holding together physical things, but He's holding together your peace of mind. Amen? You say, how can I get up and face tomorrow? You go through a tragedy, or sometimes it's not even tragedy. Sometimes it's just the everyday grind of life. And sometimes you may be doing dishes, standing in your kitchen window and look out and say, God, how am I going to keep going on? The steadfast of mind, he will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. You have to give your whole mind to Jesus. Amen? Cut out the idols. Unite your mind. Don't let it be divided. Give it all to God. Now, I referred to this verse earlier, but it cannot be overemphasized. Jesus himself looked at his disciples after talking to them about the persecution that they were going to endure, how they were going to have to die for him, how things were going to get wild. And I'm going to talk about that in tomorrow's message. Listen, things are wild now. They're going to get worse and worse and worse. It's going to get wild, my friends. But the wilder, the more exciting. Jesus told his disciples how difficult it was going to be. And this is what he said. These things, and you can apply this to this seminar. I have given you straight from the Word of God, all right? These things God has spoken to you so that in Him you may. There's a possibility that you can have peace if you will yield to Him. In the world, it's a guarantee you will have tribulation. But take heart, take courage. Jesus said, I have overcome the world. You may say, Shelley, that's easy to believe on a good day. Do you know that Jesus spoke this 
right before he was arrested and crucified? Now think about this. Jesus said, I have overcome the world. And then he let a group of Roman soldiers arrest him, beat him, nail him to a cross. But he had the nerve to say, right before it happened, I have overcome the world. Yeah. Because the darkest, most confusing moments are all light to God. Psalm 139, I forget exactly which verse it is, but Psalm 139 says, Darkness is as light to God. The psalmist said, If I say that the light will grow dark about me, he said, Even the darkness will not be dark to you, O God. For darkness is as light. Now watch this. The reason Jesus could say that, he looked at his disciples and he said, Okay, You're in the little blue circle. You're in the cosmos. That's what the Greek word here for that is. You're in this world system, this world order. We're stuck in this life. And in this world, you are going to have trouble. But Jesus was saying, take heart because I'm transcendent. Amen? I'm outside of, I'm bigger than the cosmos. I'm walking it with you, but I'm bigger than it is. And I have overcome the world. Now, he was trying to get his disciples to see, it's not going to look like it to you. Things are going to get really wild and dark here. But remember, darkness is not darkness to me. Listen, God, the Bible says in 1 John that God is light. What is darkness, scientifically speaking? The absence of light. Where is God? Everywhere. So where is darkness? It's doomed from the beginning. Okay? Right now, God is in the world, but there's coming a day when He's going to take over the world. Okay? He is dwelling in us as Christians, but one day we're going to dwell in His presence, and in Him there is no darkness. Amen? So what seems dark to us is not really dark, and that's what happened at the cross. When Jesus, when Jesus was taken and He was put on the cross and He died for us, it seemed like that was the end. It seemed like God's plan had been foiled, but it never was. Amen? Because the Bible says, now watch this, the Bible says in the book of Acts, Acts 2, 23 and 24, this man, okay, Peter was speaking about Jesus, this man, capital M, delivered over to you by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Who delivered Jesus over to be crucified? Was it out of God's control? Who delivered him over to be crucified? God. It looked like God was out of control, but God was absolutely in control. He delivered Jesus over to be crucified. You nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death. I love this. Since it's impossible, it's impossible for the author of life to be killed. Amen? He made us. He is the author of life. It is impossible that we could ever believe that the author of life would stay in the grave. Amen? But for those three days, it seemed awfully dark, didn't it? 
Listen, I told you about this brother of mine, and I'm sure that he would not mind me telling you this because he loves Jesus like nobody's business. My brother is probably my greatest prayer partner, and he has been for the past five years that he's been in prison, federal prison. I paced my house for many, many years. I've prayed for both my brothers many, many years to come back to the Lord. I would, I really ramped up my prayer life about six years ago in terms of praying for their salvation. And I remember pacing the house praying, God save my brothers. I have one brother named Jan and one brother named John. God save my brothers. Save my brothers. Do, and I remember that day. God, watch out when you pray this, right? Do whatever it takes, but save my brother's eternal soul. So about a year later, I had been the principal of a Christian school. I'd moved up from being a lead teacher to principal. I'd just taken over a Christian school. I'd been principal one month in charge of all the kids from pre-K to grade 12. First month on the job, I get a phone call. Go back. I live on the same street as my parents' house. I go back to my parents' house. They wouldn't even let me in the yard at the beginning, but I finally got in. And I looked at our street, and it was lined with federal police cars, unmarked cars, just as far as the eye could see. And my parents' house was cordoned off with police tape, and federal agents were everywhere. And they had my brother down in the basement, and they were looking for all kinds of stuff, and it was a wild day. And I was so disillusioned. My brother was there and my parents, and we didn't know what was going on. I remember talking to my other brother out in my parents' front yard. It was a rather nice fall day out, and we were standing in the front yard just trying to talk and put our heads together, what's going on? And I remember taking a number of steps to the side of the yard, like just to, I don't know, just to move, just to go somewhere. And a federal agent looked out my mom's kitchen window and said, now you understand something, don't you? If you move more than three feet in any direction, I am allowed to shoot you. I said, man, what is going on here? And still not knowing what was going on, hours later, I remember them taking my brother in handcuffs and putting him into the police car. And as they were ducking his head down in the car and he had the handcuffs on his back, I remember being the person who went to the car to say the last thing to him. And the agent let the back window be down. And I looked at my brother through tears and I said, Johnny, I just want you to know something. I love you. And he looked at me, went like this, and off he went. And the next time I saw him was at his sentencing hearing. I was a character witness at his sentencing hearing. And I saw my brother stand up in chains and say to the prosecuting attorney and to the judge these words, I will take this sentence like a man, but I want you to know something. I want to thank you, the prosecuting attorney. I want to thank you, the judge. And I want to thank my God and Savior for letting this happen to bring me to the end of myself, to save me from myself and my sin. And he said, by God's grace, you'll never see me again once my sentence is served. And I want to tell you something. He got saved that day. I talked to him later on when he came home to go to Halfway House. I got to talk to him. And he said, that was the day I was saved, Shelley. I thought I knew Jesus. 
I thought I knew Jesus. I never knew him till the day I was arrested. Now, I've said this before when speaking. If you would have walked up to me the day I stood in my parents' yard with all the unmarked police cars and watched my brother be taken off in handcuffs, if you would have said to me, Shelley, God is answering your prayer right now, I would have punched you in the face. (laughs) You crazy nuts! (laughs) But I want to tell you something. The darkest day was actually the brightest day. And my brother loves Jesus Christ with all his heart. Now, sometimes in this life, God will let us see how he turns darkness into light. Sometimes we don't see it in this life. Do you understand? That was my opening quote from C.S. Lewis. Sometimes it takes heaven to work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. But you trust in the God who is before all things and holds all things together. Amen? That's just an example to show it is never dark with God. God is always, always, always in control. When we give God our lives and all our trust, we know that His will and power cannot be compromised. Unlike idols, there is no threat to God. Amen? Nothing that can stop him. Unlike all the other things that we might, might try to serve, we, however, have to make the choice to worship him. And if you want to think about God in terms of why we worship him, how we worship him, Isaiah chapter 40 is a wonderful chapter to share with your children. It explains the bigness of God. Isaiah 40 verse 12 says about God that he has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. So how big is God? Now, now literally, this is, these are, God is using metaphors here, but this is His Word. He wants you to know this. When you are upset, when you are downtrodden, when you are facing the real issues of life, He wants you to be able to go in your brain to Isaiah and to think, God, you're big. You're bigger than this. You hold the waters in the hollow of your hand. It's a visual that you can hang on to. Now, what is the hollow of your hand? Well, if you go like this, they kind of cup your palm. Not, not including your fingers, just the palm of your hand. That's the hollow of your hand. Now, may I have a volunteer? Of course, nobody's going to volunteer for the math crazy person. Oh, Michelle, volunteer. You're close. I was going to come back there. Okay, you're close. Now, watch this. Okay. So, Michelle, come down here. Stand up. All right. Let's see how much water Michelle can hold in the hollow of her hand. Put your hollow out. Don't you love that? Put your hollow out. Oh, hollow it a little bit more. Like, cup it a little bit more. Okay, now, this is just in your palm right now. This is a cap full of bottled water. Oh. Okay, Michelle can't even hold a cap full. Let's give her a hand. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Very good. You are a great example. Okay. No, actually, none of us would be able to hold the whole cap full. This is very interesting. We can't even hold a cap full of bottled water in the hollow of our hand, let alone a glass full, a bathtub full, a lake full, an ocean full, or the waters of the entire universe, all of its vapor and all of the water in the entire universe. The Bible says God holds where? In the hollow of His hand. You think He's big? Everybody say, God is really, really Big. He's really, really big. He's really, really in control. There's another beautiful picture. It says he has, with the breadth of his hand or with the span of his hand, he has marked off the heavens. Now, what is the span in the Hebrew? You asked, right? You did, right? 
What does it mean, the breath or the span in the Hebrew? Yeah, everybody's like, yeah, yeah. Okay, we learned trigonometry, Greek, and Hebrew. Okay, so here's what it means. In the Hebrew, the span, if you go like this with your hand, from you spread out the tip of your thumb to the tip of your pinky, that's a span or a breadth in the Hebrew. So the Bible says that God measures the heavens, all of the universal skies, with the breath of his hand. So we stand down here and we're like, oh my goodness, the universe is expanding at a high rate of speed. It's like a bubble that's exploding. You know, 2.2 million light years is our nearest neighboring galaxy. Like, we can't even fit in our mind how big the universe is. And here's what God's doing with it. You want to know how big it is? Yeah, about right there, he says. Got it all. Measuring it by the span of my hand. If I tried to measure the span of the sanctuary, the, the, the distance of the sanctuary with the span of my hand, I'd get messed up, right? Because I'd have to use so many of them. God's measuring the entire universe with the span. How big is God? He's really, really big. And this is stuff you can show with your kids and grandkids that they can wrap their minds around. Says He weighed the mountains on the scales. Okay, as an insulin-dependent diabetic, I've been known to weigh my apples on a scale to see how many carbs are in it. God's weighing... The mountains on a scale. He is so huge. And then, Isaiah 40.28, he ends this practical dissertation by saying, in Isaiah 40.28, that he will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. Now, let me put it in context. Isaiah 40, verse 26, starts like this. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. So why do you say, O Jacob, no, he's talking to his children. So why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. He says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow tired or weary. His understanding, no one can fathom. I remember one time I was going through a very difficult situation. Very difficult situation. And it seemed like a certain group of people in my life were going to have power over something that was going to happen in my life. And I was scared. And I went down into a garage with a Bible, and I said, I am going to preach the Word of God to this garage wall and my own heart, and I'm going to have God say something to me about not being afraid. And God took me to Isaiah chapter 40, all right? And it amazes me that He holds the stars in place, calls them each by name. They're just balls of hydrogen and helium, but He has each one named and holds it up there. Okay, so do you think he cares more about us who are made in his image than he does balls of hydrogen and helium? That's what he's saying. You know, why would you complain and think I'm not taking care of your life? I love you. Then he says, I will not grow tired or weary. Now, I talked to you a little bit about my nephews since I don't have children of my own. My nephews became really close to me. Their parents divorced when Noah was four and Jake was only two. But even before their parents divorced, I was a school teacher. I was off in the summers. Both of their parents worked. I lived three doors up from my mom. I was like so involved in Noah's life, babysitting him, taking care of him. And Jake was only two, but uh, even before that, Noah and I, we grew really close. And I remember when the divorce happened and it was a terrible scene and Noah was literally taken from me, from my parents' house, um, 
he ran to me and he clung to me and his body was stuck on me. And he wouldn't let go, but he had to go. He was being taken, you know. And I said, could I just have one minute? And I took Noah into my parents' bedroom and I sat on the edge of the bed with him and he was four years old. Now, I had been taking him out to breakfast before that. I had been coloring our Bibles together before that. We'd go to Bible verses and learn them and we'd color them. I had been telling him about the new heavens and the new earth and trusting in Jesus and what Jesus was going to do in the future and not training him. And it's important to do that when kids are young because when he was four years old, I bounced him on my knees there as he was screaming and crying and wouldn't let go of me. And I said, now, Noah, you remember what Aunt Shelley taught you. This is a very dark day here. This is very hard. But Aunt Shelley taught you Jesus is in control and he's coming back one day. Remember the new heavens and the new earth I taught you about? He shook his head, yes. I said, there's coming a day when we won't ever have to be separated from each other. You trust in Jesus, you know. That's the kind of relationship Noah and I have had. And then when he was 10, he's almost 14 now, but when he was 10 years old, you know, he had gone through his uncle, going away to prison. He had gone through a divorce, you know, gone through, lost a lot of things in his life. And then my grandma, who we called Nanny, died. It was just another loss in his life. And I, he was just devastated. And, and I remember at the funeral home, he kind of hung around near me because whenever all these tragedies would happen, I seemed to be the one stable person to keep him on track with God. I tried to hold myself together to hold him together, even though I was hurting so bad, you know. And at the funeral, Nanny's funeral, in the funeral home, he kind of stuck by me. And when it came time for us to drive to the grave site, he asked to ride with me and my parents. My husband was in the car in front of us, in the hearse, and I was in my parents' car, and Noah asked to ride with us, and he did. And as he rode with us, the whole way to the graveside, like 20 minutes up there, he asked me questions about Jesus and death and what Jesus was doing and how a person is saved. He kept going over all those things he had been taught. So where is Nanny Aunt Shelley? What's happening, Aunt Shelley? What's going to happen to her body, Aunt Shelley? And we talking about the stuff of life. And he, he got into some of the pains that he has gone through as a child and emotional stresses. And we talked and we talked. We got to the graveside. Now remember, Noah was 10 years old at this point. And I was dressed in a skirt and high heels. Okay? We get out of the car and this 10-year-old boy... Now, by the time you're 10 years old, you're kind of cool. Kind of cool, you know? The 10 years old, there's all these people around. We get out of the car and the graveside committal was down a hill, down this big grassy hill. And I will never forget this as long as I live. That 10-year-old boy looked at me. He said, Aunt Shelley, will you carry me? So everybody was there. His mom, his dad, everybody. Aunt Shelley, will you carry me? Yeah. Okay. So, in my high heels and my skirt, hands going numb, carrying this 10-year-old body down this big hill, me, myself, struggling emotionally, I carried him down the hill to the graveside. As my husband was doing the committal, he sat on my lap. And while we were going through that graveside committal, I continued to have conversation with him and explained to him what was going on. He continued to ask me questions. And when we sang the last song, prayed the last prayer, then he was looking at the place where Nanny's coffin was going to be put in the ground, and we were about to leave and go back up to the cars. It was over. Um, I remember we stood up, 
And he looked at me again. He said, Aunt Shelley, will you carry me up the hill? So I wrapped my arms around him. I carried him up the hill. He laid his head down on my shoulder, and he started. He wanted me to continue to tell him the stuff of Jesus and life and victory and resurrected bodies and never being separated again, and I did. Now, the reason I will never forget that is because of this verse. My hands grew numb carrying him. It was rough. But the time when I had to carry Noah because of his greatest confusion and hurt was some of the most intimate and wonderful learning time that he has ever had. And God gave me the visual that he never grows tired or weary. And what he longs for us to do is to take the distress and the hurt and the pain. And instead of diverting our minds to all different preoccupations and being afraid of the hurt and the silence, to look up to Jesus and say, Will you carry me? And some of your most intimate moments with the Lord will come as you yield and look those hurts straight in the face and let him carry you. Because unlike Aunt Shelley, who eventually had to put Noah down, God never puts you down. He does not grow tired or weary. Amen? He will carry you all through this life. Just picture it. Okay? And then it says his understanding no one can fathom. When I was a teacher of high school students, I had this one particular class that drove me, in, drove me insane. So insane that I said drive is the past tense there. Did you hear that? They would ask me questions like, well, if God knew we were going to sin and he was going to have to send some people to hell, why did he make us in the first place? They would ask me all the hard questions, you know. So one day I went home and I said, God, please give me an example to share with these kids so that they can see that there are some things about you I can't explain and that that's actually a good thing. So I came in the next day and I came up with this through the God's Holy Spirit and it's in one of my devotional books. It's a really simple thing to understand. It's called the pea watermelon concept. Okay? If you picture up on this stage the biggest, most gigantic, green, juicy watermelon you've ever seen, right? And picture a single pea from a pod pressed up against the watermelon. Now, if that watermelon had eyes and could see, how much of the pea would he be able to see? Well, he'd be able to look to the size of the pea, down over the top of the pea because he's looming over it. He'd be able to see all around that thing. But if the little pea had eyes and could see... How much of the watermelon could he grasp? I don't know, probably about this much. All right? Now, this analogy breaks down at some point because God is not just as big as a watermelon. He's infinitely big. But suffice it to say that we are the pea brain and he is the watermelon. Now, this just puts it into real easy visual form. When God looks at your life, he sees it from beginning to end. He knows what tomorrow holds. He knows why 10 years ago happened. He knows what 15 years from now is going to look like. And somehow he's working it all together. Amen? When he looks at the course of human history, he knows it from beginning to end. He sees it all. We don't. We're stuck in time and space. 
When we look at God, how much of Him can we see? About this much. And sadly, we don't even look at this. Amen? The day we have studied and understood and meditated on this whole Bible the way we should is the day we can go to God and say, okay, I need more now. But we'll never get to that place. Amen? We are the pea brain. He is infinite and we are finite. When I look at God, I can't figure out all His ways. His understanding, no one can fathom. But that makes me believe in Him more. Because... If you came to me and said, Shelly, I really like your teaching. You seem to know a lot about this or that. Let me ask you a question. Can you answer all my questions about God? Please answer all my questions about God. If I said to you, sure, I can answer all your questions about God. I can explain everything about Him. Then guess how big God would be? As big as Shelly Prindle. Okay, even on my best day, you don't want me to be God. Listen, we can't explain everything about Him because we are smaller than He is. I want a big God. Amen? I want a supernatural, infinite God. And if I posit that my God is supernatural and infinite, then there is no way that I can figure everything about Him out. But He has given me enough. This is the essence of apologetics. He has given me enough to wrap my mind around to understand that faith takes me above what reason can figure out. It never goes against reason, but it transcends reason. Amen? Focus on what He did tell us. Believe what He did say, and God will take you above it because He is infinitely big. So the direct question from God is, to whom will you compare me or who is my equal? That's how he, that's how he talks in this Isaiah 40 when he's speaking of how big he is. And that's what God said to me today. I was so afraid about what these group of people, how they were going to be able to influence my life. And I remember God taking me to Isaiah 40:25, And this is what he hit me over the head with. It was as if he was standing in that garage with me and said this. Shelley, who is my equal? You think a group of finite human beings can combat me and win? If I have a plan for your life, you think, and and you put whatever there, you think any amount of money you believe you don't have to accomplish that is going to stop me? Who is my equal? You think any issue that you're battling, any problem that you're going through can stop the will of God for your life? Who is my equal or to who will you compare me, says the Holy One? Because to be anxious or to be afraid is to posit or to believe that someone or something exists that could possibly go to battle with God and win. Amen? When we are anxious, we are believing that there is a circumstance, an issue, a person, a problem, something that could actually go to battle with the God of the universe, the God of Isaiah 40, and win. And I want to tell you something. That is the dumbest thing I ever heard of. Amen? My diabetes is not bigger than my God. Amen? Your problem is not bigger than your God. Amen? He is the one who is in control. And we'll end in, in, on this, in this scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, 24-28. Oh, this is something. This is reality. This is really what's going to happen in the future. Okay? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, which by the way is a fabulous chapter about the physical resurrection of our bodies, relates to that Romans 8 I was talking to you about. The Bible says that Jesus, when the end will come, 
He, Jesus, is going to hand over the kingdom to God the Father after He has destroyed all dominion, all authority, and all power. For Jesus must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. Now, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Okay? For He has put everything under His feet. Now, when it says, that's a typo there, when it says that everything has been put under Him, it is clear that this does not include God Himself who put everything under Jesus. When Jesus has done this, then the Son Himself will be made subject to God who put everything under Him so that God may be... Now, check this out. What does it say God is going to be in the future? All in all. Now, let that sink into your brain. Jesus is going to conquer every enemy, every power of hell, even death itself. And after He has conquered everything, He's going to take everything He's conquered, He's going to hand it over to the Father so that the Father God may be all in all. This is the place that the universe is heading. Now, check this out. I wrote a devotion. I forget which book it's in. It might be in the first book. It's called, What is this world coming to? You know how people ask that? All this stuff going on. What is this world coming to? And I said, what it's coming to is a place where God's going to be all in all. Now, that's the place God's taking the entire history of the universe. No matter what has ever happened in your life or anybody's life, all the bad that seems to be out of control, God's going to point it all in one direction and He's going to make it drive towards one place and that is the place where He is all in all. Let me ask you a question. If that's the place the universe is going, where should I be going today? You want to be in line with the cosmic plan for the universe? You want to feel at peace with God? Go to the same place He's taking everything. Where is He taking everything? Where He is everything. Can you say this afternoon, God is my what? All in all. With an undivided heart, with an undistracted mind, no matter what problems we face, can we say this afternoon that God is all in all? That's the question. And it's also the answer to all anxiety. Listen, God is going to do this. This is a reality. It's a historical reality. And... Um, when I was teaching my Sunday school class this Easter, I just want to share with you this thing. It's high time we really get into the Bible and be excited about what it really says. Don't you think so? Did you learn today that there are some places and verses in the Bible that you can actually get excited to, excited about if you think about them? This is real, okay? When it was Easter in my Sunday school class, we went to Matthew chapter 27 where Jesus wore the, he was uh, arrested. And they put the, the robe on his bloody back. Do you remember that? Okay, Jesus had been beaten. He'd been flogged by Pilate. And it says they put a robe on his back to mock him. You remember that? And it was, I said to my class, obviously that robe would have gotten very bloody. Amen? 
would have gotten very bloody because the Romans would whip people until their intestines and bones were coming out. You know what I mean? So he had it open and bleeding all over his back and they put a robe on him and it would have become very bloody, soaked with his own blood. And then they took a reed. Now a reed was a papyrus plant stalk, a water plant. So instead of taking like a real staff, they took a reed, a water plant, and they gave it to him and they made that, you know, mockingly his staff. And they actually hit him on the head with it. And they put what kind of crown on his head? A crown of thorns. In, in a mocking way, they took a crown of branches and they whipped it together and they pressed it down on his head and he began to bleed from his head. He wore a crown of thorns. And when he stood before his accusers and they accused him of all that he has done, the Bible says that instead of combating them, what did Jesus do? He remained silent before his accusers. Now, I, one of the things that I specialize in in my ministry is tying things in the Old Testament to things in the New Testament and paralleling and showing you a theme throughout the Bible. And I discovered something totally... I mean, I don't know if nobody... Surely other people discovered it. I didn't know it before. I found this one day. I was studying Matthew 27 and my mind went directly to Revelation 19. Now, I want you to keep in mind what we just said and I want to end with this when we talk about God being all in all. If you have your Bible, let's end with this. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 19. Besides that, I might as well just whip up into my return of Christ mode, right? Since that's tomorrow morning. So, I'm going to tell you, you want to get excited about something? You want to see how God turns things inside out? How He undoes anxiety and undoes problems and difficulties for His purposes? Look at Revelation chapter 19. And we're going to pick it up at verse 11. Now, check this out. Bible says, then I saw heaven opened. John got a vision. Revelation 19:11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. What did Jesus ride into Jerusalem on before his crucifixion? A donkey. All right? He didn't have a horse. He didn't have an animal of war. He didn't have weapons. He came in humbly and riding on a donkey. Now, when he comes back the second time, my friends. What's he riding this time? A horse, baby. A white horse. Now, seriously, get this deep down in your soul. This affects today. When you go home, you have to make dinner, and you have to do your dishes, and you start going back into the humdrum routine of life. There's nothing routine about living. There should be nothing for the Christian that's routine. We do all things for the glory of God. We're thinking always of His reality. You need to live like this is the truth. Do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? Then you better believe this. Amen? We should live with victory. Anxiety is undone. Problems are undone. God is going to undo and turn inside out so much. So He comes in the first time humbly on a donkey. He comes back the second time on a horse. And then the Bible tells us, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness He judges and makes war to all the pacifists in the world, Jesus makes war. Okay, now listen. When He came the first time in righteousness, only because He was perfectly righteous and holy, could He pay for my sin. Amen? In righteousness the first time, He came to be my sacrifice. In righteousness the second time, just the same righteousness and holiness, what's He going to do this time? 
He ain't going to be making no sacrifice. Forgive the bad, bad English, all you English teachers. He ain't going to be making a sacrifice. He's going to be making what? War! This is serious business. Now look, he's turning it all inside out. In his righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head is not a crown of thorns. A mocking crown of thorns. What's on his head? Many diadems. Many crowns. Real crowns. Crowns of authority. Crowns of a king. Now check this out. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Remember we said Jehovah in all capitals means you can't describe, just say, I am. When Jesus died on the cross, when he came the first time, they mockingly put a sign over his cross. They said, he's the king of the Jews. And he is the king of the Jews. But he's so much more. I love that scripture. Jesus is so deep and so great, you can't even pin a name on him to hold him in. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is, now look, look at this. This devotion on my website is titled, Two Bloody Robes Tell the Story. If you get on the website, hopeandpassion.org, or Google my name, you've got to find this. I make this parallel. The, the robe that he wore the first time was stained with his own blood. When he comes back the second time, what does he have on? What's it say? Read it. He has a robe, what? Dipped in blood. Scholars debate over that's the blood, whether that's the blood of his enemies or that's the, you know representative of the blood he shed. But he has a robe on again. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Now check this out. When he came the first time, the Bible tells us that a battalion of Roman soldiers took him to Pilate. That means 120 to 200 Roman soldiers dressed in full garb came to take him to the cross before Pilate. When he comes the second time, he's not being led by a battalion of soldiers. What's happening? He is leading, amen, the armies of heaven. Not Pilate's army, but the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And by the way, I can't get off too far on a tangent, but do you know who that army is? Us. Are there going to be animals in heaven? Okay. Yes. Okay, there are. We're going to be riding on white horses. Now look at this. Instead of being silent before his accusers, from his mouth comes what? A sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them, not with a papyrus reed, but with a rod of iron. See, see how this parallels so beautifully? And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now it gets worse. You can read on and get real gory with your kids. This is interesting. Let's just go to 17. I'll finish up with this. How many of you want to go to 17? You want to read something really cool? Gory? Yeah. We're into gore, right? I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God. Now stop there. Don't read on. Isn't that beautiful? White horses, the army's coming, Jesus, you know, coming to make war. You look up and you see an angel and he's calling to all the birdies in the sky. Come to the great supper of God. You think, wow, what are they going to eat? I'm glad you asked. Verse 18. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, 
the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against us, his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all their birds were gorged with their flesh. Listen, Jesus can undo anything. He's not a mamby-pamby, ridiculous little Jesus. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen? And He is coming back that God might be all in all. And the story gets better because you get to Revelation 21 and John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 